Welcome to Good Business, a weekly podcast to help you create a business that is good for people, planet, and the profit line. Hi, I'm Chris Edwards. I'm a serial entrepreneur. You may know me from my first business, Honeycombers, which is a digital lifestyle guide providing you with everything you need to know to enjoy your local city. We operate in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Bali, and this year we're in our 15th year of operation. Or perhaps you know me as the founder of Launchpad, a community movement designed to support entrepreneurs who aspire to create conscious companies. On this podcast, we're going to explore the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial ride and understand how successful and clever innovators and business leaders bring people, planet and profit together to build better businesses. So what does it take to create a heart-led business? Join me and together we're going to learn how to create a good business. Before we do, I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I am recording this podcast on, Bundjalung Country. And I pay my respects to the elders past and present, and I extend my respects to all traditional cultures. All right, let's get into it. Today's guest is Christian Tan, who is one of the co-founders of Tanjong Beach Club, which is a very iconic beach club in Singapore. And Christian shares with me his journey from leaving corporate, he was working at Cisco, to pitching to Sentosa to take on the beach club location. Christian is very candid with what he shares with us today and I just got so much out of this chat. There's more than three takeouts for sure. I love this story. I find it really inspiring and I think that there's a lot to learn from Christian and his way in which he's approached his business, which has been with a huge amount of energy and tenacity and attention to detail. And I just absolutely love this chat. I'm sure you're going to love it as well. So let's get into it. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to it. Yeah, great. I feel like I know you really well because as most expat Singaporeans, they've all spent a lot of time at Tanjong Beach Club. And I remember when it first opened, it was about 2009. I think it was similar timing to when I started Honeycombers. Maybe for our listeners that haven't been there, you could share what is Tanjong Beach Club and how did the beach club come about? Yeah, I was working with an IT company. I was working with Cisco Systems. I used to have a sort of a regional role. I had a regional role. Uh, I was based out of Sydney. I used to come through Singapore a lot for this regional role. The head office was here with Cisco Systems. I used to hang out on Tanjong Beach every weekend. I think like a lot of people did. And uh, it was a restaurant. There was a beach club there called KMA. It was loads of fun. My brother and I, uh, my brother was working with Macquarie Bank. He was an investment banker. Uh, We used to hang out there and have a great time with friends. We were a little bit over our day jobs (laughs) after working uh, in the sort of corporate area for many, many years. And we just thought, why don't we explore the idea of opening a hospitality venue? We felt there was lots of opportunities in Singapore, you know, 13, 14 years ago. And a beach club would be perfect because we're originally from Perth. We're real beach boys. We, we, we love sort of coastal lifestyle. And, you know, fortunately, we've, we've been able to travel a lot through our work and, and we always sort of gravitate towards beach clubs or a surf spot. Or So hanging out at KMA was fantastic and it's just coincidentally a mate said, I heard you're 
exploring ideas of opening a restaurant or a beach club, you're not going to believe it, but the site at KM8 is up for grabs and is up for tender. And there's a lot of people tendering it, pitching for it. It's obviously a fantastic location. Um, I think you should have a look. And I approached the Sentosa Development Corporation. I was able to get the tender details. My brother and I got extremely excited. We approached a partner, and that was Teng Wen Wee from the Lo and Behold Group. He at the time had Loof, who my brother was a small, silent shareholder of, of Loof, rooftop bar opposite the Raffles Hotel, which was a fantastic sort of rooftop space and very successful. And he also had White Rabbit in... Um, in Dempsey there, which was a beautiful restaurant in an old church. We proposed to Ting uh, the idea of opening a beach club together and he loved a lot of our ideas and being sort of um, very passionate sort of beachgoers, we, we had a lot of ideas and I have a younger brother, Eugene, who has a very successful business, I think we might touch on that later, called Aquabumps. You know, I had ideas of putting an, you know, a, a gallery. Uh, I had mates in, in Bondi that were doing the outdoor cinema. You know, I'd been to beach clubs like Nikki Beach and just previously in Miami, I was uh, like a regular at sort of coup d'etat in Bali when it first opened. Uh, so this, all this was all sort of top of mind to me. So I had a lot of fantastic ideas to sort of pull together to make a really sort of aggressive and attractive uh, proposal and tender and pitch to Sentosa Development Corporation. We put our best foot forward and we won the tender and it was a game changer. I was living in Sydney at the time. I flew up as soon as we won the tender. I um, sort of quit my Cisco job and, yeah, we started building the venue. It took 10 months. It was our life savings. It was kind of all, all chips in, you know, so it had to work. But I felt that, you know, we ticked a lot of boxes. Uh, the location was very strong. It was unique. It had a car park. We had lots of great ideas. We had a great team. It's right on the waterfront there. You had a sunset. I, I just felt that we were ticking a lot of the, the boxes to make this a very successful venue. And it, since, you know, it opened and as the trucks were driving out, uh, you know, for the construction, uh, the guests were coming in on the same day and we had a launch, we had an opening party of 700 people, not really knowing what I was doing, but um, we opened and it was a huge success sort of from day one. It poured with rain that night, so it was a bit chaotic, but I think people were just very excited with this beautiful new venue and, um, and then the rest is history. Yeah, wow, what a story. It is a really iconic venue in Singapore and I think a lot of people will have a lot of or do have a lot of fond memories of spending time at Tanjong Beach Club and I have to say as I do and I've actually spoken to people in Australia that are like oh Tanjong Beach Club yes you know they remember it so fondly I imagine you would have had a really steep learning curve and I'm wondering how did you learn so quickly how to operate a large F&B venue? Yeah, it was full on. And you're right, there was a massive sort of growth learning curve at the start. My brother and I are a great team, but he's more of the back of house. He's the financial guy. Uh, I'm more the front of the house. And so I was sort of actively involved. I worked very closely with the Lone Behold group and they had a team and Tang and, you know, we were very aligned and of what we wanted to do. And so I kind of focused a little bit more on the corporate events side of the business. We felt that that was the beach partying and drinking was something that was was always going to be successful but we felt that there was potential growth and recoup our invest a very large investment it was through corporate events and and that was a part that I didn't really initially put into the business plan or, or knew much about but I sort of dove into and pretty much for four years I was just head down 
Uh, and we were just doing so many corporate events, fashion events, company D&Ds. And this was good because, it's, I mean, corporate events are great uh, from an econ- economic perspective and we were able to recoup a lot of investment. And what I realised in Singapore, a lot of people were doing a lot of things in Marina Bay Sands, the formal stuff in conference rooms, but they wanted, and because Singapore is such a regional hub, they want them to relax and network and to simulate and get on. And because all these regional teams and events were happening in Singapore, our venue was perfect for team building events, just like barbecues, just where they could interact and relax. And so we were just overwhelmed with uh, inquiries for corporate events. And I dove into that part of the business. We had from 50 packs to 5,000 guests at Tanjung Beach Club events. You know, we had Flight Center, all the Flight Center reps. There was 5,000 of them. They all came from around Australia, New Zealand. <laughs> they did. They had Fatboy Slim. Um, they had amazing sort of activations all down the beach. Uh, we spent six months on that project. We've had, you know, McDonald's Australia. We'd had BMW. We've had Macquarie. We had all the lot, most of the banks, uh, consulting firms. We've done lots of different types of events. So I really learned a lot about corporate events. And generally, I just learned a lot about the whole hospitality industry. I, I grew up as a waiter at Burswood Casino, the casino in Australia, you know, uh, at the convention centre doing a lot of waitering and bar work and bar backs and things like that. But I've never been a business owner. So this was really being a business owner, uh, running a big team like this, running a big venue, a complicated venue because there's so many, I think we talk about later, there's so many moving parts uh, a lot of people move around a lot at a beach club too. When the weather changes, people move. It's really challenging uh, as a first venue. So yeah, learnt quick and really enjoyed it. Yeah, I look at I look at F and B businesses like Tanjong Beach Club, and I think lots of people go, "Well, I'd be such a fun business to own." But I look at it and I go, "Oh, long hours, your peak times of the weekends." You need a lot of staff. You probably need a lot of junior staff to make sure it's profitable. You you need excellent food and service because, you know, one bad review and it can blow up on the internet. So I just look at it and think, whoa, what a hard, hard business to get into. So I'd love to know what's your advice to people that are keen on getting on into F&B? What do you think has been the secret sauce? Yeah. It, it's going to look easy. A lot of people say, ah, oh, you're just cruising around and stuff like that, like a duck gliding on a lake. But if they look underneath, those little web legs are sort of going at a million miles an hour. You know, the food, the drinks, the music, the atmosphere, the hosts, the reservation. There's lots of moving parts that you have to sort of get right to make sure that this get, the guests have an amazing experience and come back. I have to say there's not probably like one secret sauce, but I, I suppose I, I could say that you know, being a hands-on operator and deeply involved in the business is really important. I do sort of observe some uh, F&B businesses where, you know, you get a hold of guys invest in one sort of guy, has a little bit of experience, they sit back, sort of drink cocktails in the corner and, you know, just sort of watch it sort of tick over. And I think we were quite different. You know, we, as I said, we were very hands-on. We were always present in the venues. We were talking to the staff. We were acknowledging the staff, recognising when things were done well. We were listening to client feedback. We were analysing sales data. We were uh, constantly watching reviews. Uh, We were contacting guests and saying, hey, I'd love to understand a little bit more about what was that issue or what was that dish or what, you know, what was that server and so that we can sort of investigate this. And so I think that's been really, really important and has been one of our secrets to success um, is being this sort of hands-on. And then I think this goes without saying is just, you know, finding a really good passionate 
you know, management team. I think that's really, it also stems from having really good leaders in the, in the business and then everything sort of follows through from, from there on. Did it take you a while to find the right leaders in your team? Was it harder at first until you found really solid talent? Yeah, it was, took ages and it took, we had a number of different managers that we sort of worked our way through and, uh, and just learned. And I must say over the last four or five years, well, maybe a little bit more, we've had really great leaders in all our restaurants and um, they've done fantastic jobs. Yeah, so that's good. But I think I missed one of your points of your question. You asked me like, for those wanting to be in, you know, the industry, like what's sort of your advice what one of our sort of sort of not tricks, but one of the things is we always sort of like instead of like screening through websites, going oh, what sites available, you know, on these uh, listing sites, like oh that site's available, let's go rush down there, let's call the agent. We've sort of taken a different bit of a different approach. We take our time, we look for the, the best possible location that we would like to be in. It's the most strategic, that is the right shape, that has the most visibility, that's on the best, the better street, and we wait. Uh, and I think that's been really successful for us. I mean, the venue at Robinson Key has been fantastic. The venue at Lucha Loco has been absolutely gold. You know, the Customs House, you know, we, we looked a long time for a city location and then the time was right. I uh, had a chat to the, you know, the Fullerton GM and was able to get a fantastic location um, on the waterfront there. And so we, we hold out, we wait for the best site. Uh, we do lots of market research, international and local, um, we understand who's try to understand who's doing well and why they're doing well. Those that have moved on, why that happened. We really try to understand that. And it's really helpful. You know, the internet's amazing these days. You know, there's websites for hospitality people, that broadsheet in Australia. There's so much amazing sort of content and, and uh, new concepts that are coming through that are inspiring us. So we do a lot of uh, research. We also make sure that we just tick all our boxes just to reduce the risk. It's quite high risk, big investment. You know, we're self-funded. We don't have a team of investors behind us. We're making sure that location is right. We've got the right team. We've done our homework on the concept. It's unique. It's appealing. The chef's right. So we make sure we tick all these boxes. And if those boxes are not all ticked, you know, we have sort of reservations. And I'm a little bit more gung-ho than my brother, but my brother's fantastic. He's very good at managing risk and he sort of always pulls me back and says, no, no, I think there's one or two things. But generally, we make sure we tick all the, all the boxes Finding partnerships are always challenging. We make sure we have a, you know, very uh, partnership that is complementary, that we're very aligned in terms of our styles and tastes and the way we work. You know, so partnership's really important. And then we, you know, it goes without saying, keep very close eye on, you know, cost control and all our costs. And I'm very fortunate. My brother is a chartered accountant, so that's his job. And he's really, he's, he's really good at it and he can... He knows when there's a toothpick missing, um, you know, so I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. But he's, he, he, he's just all on top of it, so very fortunate. Uh, but somebody that has a really sharp eye on cost controls. And then I, I'm just quite amazed by people I talk to that just don't, that start a business without a business plan, you know, and haven't sort of thought like contingency plan, you know, scenario planning and strategy and market research and, you know, and I'm just quite amazed by businesses that just don't have business plans and pro in, in, uh, done at the start and sort of thought through all stakeholders are aligned. It really surprises me sometimes. So that's really important for us to make sure that we have that business plan in place. I know it's old school business plans. They sound a bit old school, but I think they're so important. And then I suppose just lastly, just really believing in what we're doing, have confidence in what we're doing, setting the path, 
And then, like, because everyone's got a different opinion, you know, oh, this will work, that won't work, you know. But I think once you've done all your homework, you know, I met people that told me that Mexican won't work and really senior people, you know, like big bosses of big companies who go, no, Mexican's not going to work. <laughs> what are you thinking? Tex-Mex and stuff like that is there. You know, we've already got it. And then we did something, you know, and we did it really, I feel we did it really well. And so it's been very successful. So set your path, believe in it, and then sort of go for it. I love that, Christian, and there's a lot I want to unpack in all of that. I want to start, I suppose, with Julian. It sounds like everyone needs a brother like Julian. I think you're really lucky there. I think genetically you got a, you hit gold. Your brother Eugene is also quite a famous entrepreneur from Australia who has the business Aquabumps, who sends daily emails to people, to subscribers, of imagery of Bondi. And for the expats from Bondi, it's a lovely thing to get in your inbox every morning. But I wanted to know, firstly, how do you have such an entrepreneurial family? Is this something, were you surrounded by entrepreneurs as kids or have you fed off one of another or how's this come about? Yeah, I think good question. I think my father dabbled in entrepreneurship, my mother not so much. A little bit we fed off each other, a little bit of a competitive spirit. You're right, Eugene is hugely successful, amazing what he does. Cell phone business, excuse me, with his partner Debbie, amazing team, the two of them, his wife Debbie. And so they have created this sort of global brand and send their pictures all over the world. The collaborations, recent one with Zimmerman Clothing, Javiana Thongs, like the collaborations that, you know, Debbie brings to the table and Eugene shoots the content. They're an amazing team. And so, and they're just opening a new gallery in Bondi, actually, which is amazing, which is a, which is a big sort of risk and investment for, for them. But it, I think it opens today. They're doing the soft opening today. Anyway, you're right. It is. So what's, what's sort of the common thread uh, and sort of the entrepreneurial thread then? I had a good think about it. So I think we're all quite comfortable with taking a bit of risk. You know, uh, I think like, for example, Eugene, he was working with a big consulting firm. He was working like, I mean, at a very young age, he was getting a big six-figure salary, you know, had, was in charge of 20 designers, making big, giant websites when websites and intranets and it was, big, you know, everybody wanted a website, was doing that and then sort of took a step back and pursued his passion to make 30000 a year, you know, which is not a lot in Sydney because it's very expensive in Sydney, to make 30000 a year but pursue his passion of photography, ocean photography and build that. So I think, you know, taking risks and I think, you know, with Julian and I, as I was sort of touched on before, it was our, it was all our life savings and more, you know, uh, to go into Tanjong Beach Club and, you know, Julian had spent 10 years as an investment banker working his butt off, you know, like long 70-hour days for many, many years and then to invest it all into one hospitality project, you know, in the, you know, the corner of the island was, was a big risk. Uh, so I think we have all have the confidence to take a little bit of risk. We all have a good understanding what people like. I don't want to sound arrogant. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. But we have a sort of a good perception. We have a good understanding of what people like and want. You know, I feel. We all think a little bit out of the box. We all have creative, we're sort of bouncing creative ideas off each other. We have a lot of enthusiasm and motivation sort of behind everything we do. I think that's a little bit contagious. People sort of like it, follow it. I think we're sort of, we're all very motivated in everything we do. And, you know, it goes without saying, we've sort of got the skill sets, you know, uh, that were needed. We've all sort of very fortunate. We've sort of got, uh, had the opportunity to study in our hometown Perth. We had degrees. And so that helps. And then I, I think, this, I suppose I was thinking about it. My mother always had like a lot of positive thinking, you know, books lying around the house and personal development. And, 
you know, I was always reading them and my mother was very, just had a very positive outlook and approach towards, you know, the family, life, business. I kind of think that worked out. I think that sort of positive outlook has just helped us and that's be the common thread that we've had and has helped us in our sort of entrepreneurial endeavours. That's cool. And I, I think you're absolutely right there in that you do need to be wildly optimistic to be an entrepreneur because, you know, if you really crunch the numbers, you'd be like, oh, it's probably safer if I just stay in the salaried position. <laughs> Did you have any personal blocks or, or limiting beliefs that you had to work through when you were kind of moving from a corporate career into being an F&B operator? Well, definitely at the at the start, because I sort of, yeah, was working with Cisco Systems. I had a nine-to-five job, salary, and then I jumped straight into a big hospitality venue, big investment, 500 seats, lots of people, lots of different people coming at me for every, to do festivals, DJs, corporate events. Like, it was quite overwhelming uh, and I was ridiculously busy. So yeah, it, it was it was quite full on. I think just in time, I just learned and managed to deal with that. What what I did, you know, I definitely had ups and downs. One one thing that I had was that like a life coach. I found like really good to have, and probably wish I got it earlier than later. But life coaches, you know, just fantastic about just giving your head a little bit of space to think things through, because uh, otherwise it just becomes so overwhelming with so much going on. And when you're sort of an ideator like I am, there's so much ideas and stuff going through. You need to sort of organise it a little bit, prioritise it. And then neg- some negativity and rumination creeps in now and then. But like, this is where I really like having a life coach, just somebody to talk to. And as a leader, sometimes we don't have an opportunity to get feedback or to talk to people, you know. And so life coach, I highly recommend it. Uh, and that's how I've sort of worked through a few of some of my limiting beliefs. Mm, awesome. That's, thanks for sharing. This podcast is brought to you by Launchpad, a community movement for conscious entrepreneurs. If you're seeking a sounding board, advice, masterclasses, or maybe just looking for a network of people that are in your corner to support you, come to thelaunchpad.group website and check it out. We'd love to meet you. I want to ask now, you've recently invested in the Green Steps group. Uh, can you tell our listeners what is Green Steps and, and what, what are the goals with Green Steps? It's really interesting. So many years ago, we, were, we really wanted to offset our carbon footprint. We did an assessment. We found a guy that, to do an assessment. This is quite a few years ago, about five, six years ago. And we didn't know much to, what to do, how to assess it, didn't know how to offset that, didn't really know anything. Uh, and we wanted to do it for the loco group. And we just through contacts found certain people that were doing assessments and that could sell us some carbon credits. The gentleman uh, did a great assessment. We got to find out a carbon footprint and we uh, offset that by buying carbon credits. It wasn't cheap. It's quite a lot of money actually for a small business. And it was in the Congo and we got an email. And I was like, oh, okay. And as a marketer, my background's in marketing, so how do I amplify an email? I didn't even get a photo of what we bought. I just got an email, right, of this. <laughs> so a few years later, when COVID hit, I was like, hmm, like I'd love to explore, like what are the hot areas like sustainability, AI, there's all these sort of areas. Maybe I could sort of, you know, explore some of these 
other industries or, you know, speak to a few friends about what they're doing. And I did. It sort of happened. Unfortunately, I live in Sentosa, a beautiful spot. And one of my neighbours is a lovely guy from South Africa who started a few years ago uh, a company called Green Steps. And I said to him, and I was like, um, this was my experience when we bought carbon credits in the Congo. And he's like, oh, Christian, what, you know, green, you, you need something what we're doing in Green Steps. And, 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 and what we've built is an, sort of an ecotech platform that does a few things. Firstly, it provides small businesses with the opportunity to buy, or maybe I should say adopt, trees, or you can actually buy waste that is collected off beaches and it's weighed. You can actually buy that weight. So you can buy trees, weights. And what we do is we sell that to small businesses and we sell it to a lot of hospitality businesses. So a local group could be interested. Tundra Beach, etc., uh, could be interested. And we're selling it to hospitality businesses first, but we're looking at a number of different industries. So we sell this carbon offset. It's not a carbon credit. It's a carbon offset, but you're buying a tree or you can buy a forest. And these trees, for example, are planted in reforestation farms around Asia and uh, Borneo, uh, Sumatra, etc. And we're planting trees. Now, what we're doing differently is we're verifying that tree and we are verifying it by sort of a Google Maps. So you're able to get a QR, a QR code, scan on that QR code. You're able to see all the way through to the individual farmer that has planted that tree, the species that's, that's planted, how much carbon you've offset, and the actual picture of the actual tree. So there's a real traceability there. And I, that was kind of the business problem that I had before. It's like, I have no traceability here. I just got this email. And we provide these beautiful maps to our customers. And these maps uh, enable you to go out and amplify that sustainability, your sustainability impact to your clients. So it's a B2B business. We have a whole lot of other amplification tools. You can get a little ticker on your website if you want, say how many trees you're planting, how much carbon you're offsetting. You have, can have a link all the way through to your map, your personalized map, where you can see, um, as I said, the tree, the species, etc. Yeah, so it's a really, uh, it's a startup business. We, you know, we've planted 100, over 100,000 trees. You know, I was hearing stories where like, a lot of these tree planting operations are just throwing seeds off the back of a truck. You know, as they can say, they've planted 5,000 trees. You know, we've offset 2.4 million tonnes of, of carbon annually. Uh, we've planted 90 species of trees and we've sort of about 600,000 community hours for rural communities, for people, so jobs as well. So, yeah, I, I got involved in this business. I invested. I'm helping from a marketing branding perspective. You know, it's a small business that we're growing. We're talking to some VCs at the moment to help that sort of grow. I'd love it to become a sort of a regional or international global business. But if anything, I'm just happy to be doing something positive, uh, you know, for people and for the environment. And that's my main motivation um, and want to help build this business. And so let's see. Uh, let's see how it goes. But I, I think we've, it's a great product. There are a few people doing it, but I think we, you know, we've, we've sort of, we do it really well. And some of the new stuff we're coming up with this year is great. We've just started beach cleanups. So we're doing that in uh, some beaches in South Africa where we are selling the weight of the garbage that's collected. Eco Spirits, the Proof & Co guys, Paul Gabby, amazing uh, customers of ours uh, have been doing some beach cleanups with us. Providor, uh, group here in Singapore, fantastic uh, clients that we've had been planting a huge amount of trees and forests. In addition, have been doing some beach cleanups with us, and we've got loads of other clients. And we're talking to 
you know, I think I can announce, you know, we talked to Credit Suisse, we talked to some NFT companies, we're big uh, department store in Australia, alcohol companies, hotel groups. So there's lots of great opportunity here. And I, what I realized is everybody wants to offset their carbon footprint in one way or another, whether you're a big boy, whether it be through carbon credits or through creating a forest with a smaller group, uh, such as um, the Green Steps group. Mm, cool. And will you look to leverage your audience and your clientele at your restaurants to grow Green Steps? Yeah, it is. So we have, and we've put it on the menu, a little icon. You're able to scan the QR code. And what we have at the moment is we've measured the carbon footprint of every dish that we have through Green Steps. The team at Green Steps, they are able to measure the supply chain, the packaging, everything, all these sort of aspects that you would measure when you do a carbon assessment. So they've measured every dish for us. And then what they've done is we put at the end of the of the meal, we approach the guests and say, would you like to, it's optional, would you like to offset your carbon footprint? You can buy a tree or multiple trees. The trees cost this much. I can provide you with your QR code to scan and take ownership of your tree uh, at the end of your meal. People love it. There's a real wow factor. Scan the QR code uh, and it does this Google map. It zooms in like Google Earth right to your tree, the planter. It's real. And we're just working out how better how uh, people can share that on social and things like that. So that's something that will be coming up this year so they can s- share that impact that they've made. So people can offset their meal. We have a water program as well, you know, um, and which is like Providor and a few other customers are doing it where they are uh, contributions to their uh, water program. So their water program means they have filtered water, which you can buy for a dollar a guest or whatever it may be, uh, and a portion of that goes to their forest. Um, so some of our customers are doing that. So I'm definitely leveraging off a great network that we've got and customer following at the Loco Group. And we did a Loco Earth Month where we did a vegetarian-inspired menu, sustainability cocktails. Uh, we sort of highlighted all our initiatives and that got a great response. I'm curious, have you ever put anything on the menu like alternative meat products on your menus? We have, we have. We're just conscious of choosing the right ones. We did a fantastic collaboration with the Brisbane company, actually, uh, Fable Foods, that are doing mushroom-based meats. Uh, I'm not sure if, you know, if you've heard of them. So they were doing it. Uh, so so we, we did a taco with uh, some of the Fable products. We just recently did that. We're just very conscious of, uh, of those that are that are processed, but yeah, we've been we've been exploring some other companies here in Singapore, and we do make sure that I think it's close to fifty percent of our menu is or could be. They, we can flip that out to make it vegetarian, uh, so just less meat, which obviously has a, a higher carbon footprint uh, on our menus. So that's sort of our focus. Cool. And I'm really interested to know, what do you think are going to be the biggest changes or the biggest challenges in the F&B industry in the, in the coming years? So I think that the topic everyone's talking about is inflation. <laughs> well, we're definitely feeling it. You know, the high food costs has got, I mean, Singapore is a small island. 90% of items are imported here in Singapore. It is uh, food costs are going through the roof beverage costs going through the roof. So our cogs, our cost of goods are all going up. So yeah, we're just thinking like making sure that we're showing value in everything we do, um, making sure that guest experience are feeling that there's value in everything that they sort of purchase experience. I think another one, just uh, high labor costs. I think, you know, over COVID, a lot of people sort of jumped industries uh, to become 
maybe Uber, you know, this driver or logistics drivers. They've, uh, it seems like there's a smaller pool of uh, available manpower. Uh, and so as a result, higher labor costs are going up and we're all sort of trying to get the best people. And so it's quite competitive to find good labor, uh, although we have a great team. Uh, and then I suppose thirdly, I think, yeah, just like competition. There's a lot of competition now, I must say, over the last sort of 12 years that we have, we have a lot of competition. You know, Singapore's a real hotspot. A lot of people are moving down from Hong Kong, uh, some from like places like Macau, a lot of, you know, people's ideas and stuff, but particularly sort of from Hong Kong, some from Australia. Um, so there's lots of competition here now. Uh, it's great. Welcome competition. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of competition in that sort of casual dining space, which we've, most of our concepts sort of sit. There seems to be quite a lot of uh, competition now. All good. Oh, that's um, a good summary. Christian, I can see a rooftop garden on Tanjong Beach Club, growing your own fruit and veg, keeping the, the food costs down and your um, carbon credits up. Before we round out this interview, I just want to ask you a few rapid fire questions. Firstly, what do you think a, a good business is? A good business is, is like creating a culture that is really focused around the customer's needs and just making the customers happy. Just delivering like a really high, consistent uh, quality offering product and service. I think that's probably the key to a, to a good business. Yeah, I love it. And do you have any mantras or business advice that you roll around in your head or you keep coming back to? Yeah, well, I'm a big, I'm a big follower of, of Danny Meyer. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he, he, he's the founder of Shake Shack and um, he, I think he started the 11 Madison Park, which is one of the best restaurants in the world. I really love his sort of saying, and I sort of tell it to my team, it's, you know, people forget what you do, people forget what you, you know, what you say, but people usually don't forget how you make them feel. And I think that's really relevant uh, to hospitality and all that it is. You know, I think, you know, feeling these experiences of happiness and joy and being welcomed. I have one guest that she always walks in and goes, Christian, every time I walk into your venues, I just feel happy, you know? Um, and I think people just remember how you make them feel. And that's what they talk about. Singapore is, you know, people, it's a, lot of, it's a small place, it's a lot of word of mouth. And it's really important to us. And I think people are communicating, not so much, oh, yeah, the taco was tasty, but oh, I had the best night. It was my birthday. You know, they were so welcoming. You know, uh, the tequila colleague came around. We all had a shot together. It was the best, one of the best nights of my life. Or whatever. You know, so um, I think that's one of the mantras and, and the examples that I give my team all the time. Mm, I love that. I love that. People don't buy what you do, they buy. So I suppose it's how you do it. What expression resonates for you most? Do you believe luck favours the open mind or fortune favours the bold? I am probably, I lean definitely more towards fortune favours the bold. I think, you know, we've been risk takers. You know, I've moved to Asia, built a business, I've invested a lot of money, all these risk taking, I suppose I'd have to lean more towards fortune favours the bold. Nice. And what does community mean for you in your business? Yeah, good question. So I, before I moved to, to Singapore, I was, I was living in Tamarama, um, just next to Bondi, and I loved it. And you know what? I, my favourite thing every day was just to go around to my local cafe and just see my mates and the banter and having a coffee and, you know, just that. And I just love that community. And I came to Singapore, you know, over 13 years ago, and I, I didn't get that feeling. And so when I built Tanjung Beach Club, I really wanted it to be accessible to all types of different people. I also wanted, more importantly, you know, people to come down by themselves, and just go, 
I'm going to meet people. And I, I was lucky, I get to know everybody. So I, you know, introduce people and go down. You're going to find somebody that it's sort of welcoming or get to know or introduce to somebody. And I felt that Tanjung Beach Club, I really wanted to create a community of people that, you know, just obviously love coastal lifestyle, loved, you know, being social. And that's been a focus in how I've sort of built a small community down in Tanjung Beach. Nice. Love that. And do you have a favourite business book or podcast that you follow? Um, yeah, I suppose... I, I listen to loads of podcasts and uh, I just love them because I just think there's so much amazing information uh, in podcasts. I'm really into sort of wellness and, and longevity at the moment. And I listen to obviously Andrew Huberman, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's absolutely amazing. Uh, another one, Peter Atia and his podcast, Drive. I love to hear, you know, success stories um, of people, you know, how I built this, I like to listen to. Over COVID, I got into stock broking, I stopped trading a little bit. Um, not daily trading, but buying stocks. So I listen to the Saxo Market Report. That's all my business stock market sort of information. Um, I love Tom Bilyeu, you know, from Impact Theory. I love uh, Reid Hoffman and Masters of Scale. Uh, from an F&B perspective, David Novak, uh, he, um, he was the founder of, you know, Yum Brands, the CEO of Yum Brands. Uh, I mean, he had like 45,000 venues or something incredible. And he has a podcast called How Leaders Lead. I like uh, that Jim Quick's one, uh, Quick Brain. And recently, I'm loving my mate. So I, I've really become good friends with a very interesting Israeli guy. He was um, a lecturer at Stanford and he has moved here during COVID. He's an author of books, uh, multiple books, one called Hooked and one called Indistractable. We work out on the beach every weekend. He's such a lovely man and so intelligent, so interesting. He's a behavioral design specialist. And, and it's called Near and Far, and his name is Near Eyal, and he's a, a um, he's great. Uh, I listen to his podcast now, and always good at the start of the year to sort of realign like all the productivity stuff. And but you know, I, I like his. And then yeah, so there's seven things. So there's a lot there, and I love just for a laugh. I just love Pivot, you know, with uh, Cara, uh, Cara Swisher, that tech journalist, and Scott Galloway, um, that professor Scott Galloway. I just think the banter. Is, uh, is so funny, it's unfiltered, and they're always talking about, you know, all the, the big stories in tech and always having a go at Elon Musk. And, uh, and so, it's, oh, I just find it really entertaining. If I want to switch off a little bit, just have a bit of a laugh, but still sort of stay current. And here's some interesting opinions because they're really pretty bright sort of opinions. And then from book's perspective, I'm just reading at the moment Unreasonable Hospitality, a, a hospitality book. Uh, and that's guys that basically took 11 Madison Park, from number 50 in the world to number one in the world restaurant. Uh, that was a Danny Meyer restaurant. And it's a guy called Will Gudara. I might be pronouncing that wrong. It was called Unreasonable Hospitality. And it's just his lessons and how he took that restaurant from number 50 to, to number one and his experience. I'm reading that at the moment. And one I recommend is Tony Robbins' book, Life Force. Really good if you're into sort of interested in longevity and preventative health. And I'm just blown away by how much great stuff that's coming uh, in the preventative health space um, that I had no idea about. So I've really enjoyed that Tony Robbins book. Nice. Nice. Wow. Christian, that's awesome. <laughs> We're going to link to all of these in our show notes. So if you're wanting to check some or, or all of these resources out, hit us up on our show notes. That's a really great list and 
It's great to hear how much you read and listen to business podcasts and books and, and other stuff as well. It's, you've got to get inspiration all the time, I think, as an entrepreneur. Um, my final question is, we believe a rising tide floats all boats. I'd love to know if you have an entrepreneur that you think we should invite onto this podcast. Yeah, I actually got a handful. But as I said, the gentleman that I was just talking about that has a near EL, I just find him so interesting. He's a startup investor. I think he's one of the early investors at Canva. He moved here from New York a few years ago. Uh, He's an author, written some fantastic books. Uh, He's an investor and he's sort of a behavioral economics expert. He sort of brings brings together technology, uh, behavioral science, psychology, business together. And so, yeah, I thought his books are interesting and he's really interesting. Uh, Who else? I I just met him become really good friends with a really nice guy, Andrew Collins, just moved here from China, started a sports management company in China, uh, Asia. He's, I think he's there for 15 years. He's sort of exited. He's, is it Mailman? It's his group, the sports management. He's from Melbourne. Really interesting guy, really interesting opinions and thoughts. Um, I think he's doing some sort of mentoring things and he's doing a few things at 1880 at the moment. I really like Andrew. We have always have a good good chat about all different things, Andrew Collins. And then Josh Bell from Guzman Gomez. He's always a good one. I'm not sure if you like Josh, he's quite a character, really good at like scaling businesses. I think Josh is just really clever at using technology. He's very ambitious, hungry, and he's just such a character. I always, we always have a good laugh when we sort of get together for a catch up, you know. Yes, I know Josh. And yes, Josh, if you're listening to this, uh, hit me up. Um, we definitely need to get you onto this podcast. He's a character and so inspiring, like so ambitious with his plants with Guzman and Gomez. Christian, thank you so much. I could keep going. There's so much wisdom that you've shared with us today. Congratulations on an amazing achievement with the Loco Group and Tanjong Beach Club and with Green Steps. I mean, that's kind of how I started getting really interested in what you were doing. I, I came across your involvement in Green Steps. So I think it's super cool. Um, And thanks for your time today. You're welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. All the best for 2023. You too. You too. I've got five takeaways. I couldn't bring it down to three for this one, but I've got five takeaways from this chat. God, there was just so much in there. Firstly, the value of a life coach. Really interesting that someone like Christian has used a life coach and I'm, I'm really intrigued to learn more about life coaches based on this this chat I had with him today. Secondly, I think what Christian's done really well is finding great partners. He's got a business partner who is his brother who talks about knowing if a toothpick's missing. I mean, that sounds like a fantastic business partner to have. But I also think he's been really smart with partnering with Tang from Lo and Behold, who is a really seasoned F&B operator. And I don't actually think Christian would have been successful in securing the site at Tanjong Beach Club from Sentosa without that local partnership. That's super smart and super interesting. Number three, I love the story about how he went really hard after corporate events and he really focused on that himself for the first four years to recoup his costs into the business. I think that's a really smart thing to do is to think about your business and think about what other customers can I serve with my business, maybe in quieter times or who else can use my product or or service that it's not the obvious one. Number four, the other one that sticks to my mind is 
The fact that he really does not compromise on location, which is really putting the product first. And he's saying, don't make it hard for yourself. Make sure that the location of your F&B operation or that you, whatever you're creating is the best it can be. So really focusing on that product. And then the fifth point, I loved the way he talked about being a really hands-on operator and always being present and being involved in the staff and analyzing the sales data and contacting guests and asking for further feedback. I mean, he's really getting deep into that business and and taking it really, really seriously as opposed to what he was saying, some F&B operators can kind of sit back and have a cocktail and watch it all happen. Whereas he was just going hell for leather on making Tanjong Beach Club operate and, and his other restaurants, the Loco Group, operate really as well as they could. So I just loved that chat. Um, Christian, thank you for your time. And I hope everyone who's listening got so much out of it because I certainly did. Thank you for listening to Good Business. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Selfishly, I created this podcast for my own personal growth. I really wanted to spend an hour with these amazing entrepreneurs that really inspire me. Of course, I also created it for you, our listeners, and the wider community at Launchpad, where we're a group of entrepreneurs all trying, or aspiring rather, to create better businesses together. If you enjoyed this episode, or if you have any feedback, suggestions, or just want to reach out, please do. I'd love to hear from you. You can catch me on email at chris at thehoneycombers.com or go to the launchpad.group website and check it out. Thanks for listening and I hope you leave as inspired as I am to create your own good business.